This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back to Mutant, the first ever dictionary, or alphabet, if you will, of democracy. Over 26 episodes, philosopher and political theorist Eshwari Kumar and I, Payal Puri, a journalist and editor, are constructing and deconstructing a language with which to grasp this moment in which democracies around the world are failing themselves and their people. Very few ideas in our moral and political imagination are as violent, as bloody, and as possibly barbaric as the notion of purity. The language of fanaticism begins with purity. Rhetorics of honor and dignity hinge on it. The practice of exclusion, every kind of exclusion ever conceived, is constructed on purity. Power, inheritance, property, they all turn on the unbroken hegemony of and our tacit compliance with demands for purity. It is our belief that without a collective reckoning of our suicidal compact with purity, we cannot perhaps understand the modern democratic condition itself. And that is where we begin this episode of Mutant on the letter P and two concepts inextricably bound together, purity and punishment. Ashwari, we're talking of democracy and of the political life of words and yet Is it even possible to think about purity without thinking about religion? Absolutely not. Uh, I think that's that's a very sound place to begin our conversation on and around purity. And I say around purity, not casually. By around, I mean purity is in a motion of constant regress and unachievability. Politics is dependent on a vision of purification. But politics also happens and continues to happen as an endless process because this purity that we imagine ourselves to be seeking, this purity we pursue in our political and social life through different kinds of social and political contracts is in the final instance unachievable. Purity, in that sense, is, a, is, a, is the great conceptual unsaid of the modern political tradition. We must always work with it, <clears throat> but all political work of purity eventually works and ends up working around it because nothing, absolutely nothing in our world is pure. Every time we hear of the word purity, we are therefore talking of a world, and we are therefore talking of a language that was designed for a world that transcended the human, therefore the religious. So I believe that to begin uh, our conversation uh, off and around purity is to also begin a long and sustained conversation that we will now have on mutant on the question of the religious and the co-implication of the religious with the political itself. To return to the primary um, moral and even juridical architecture that purity basically is, one must return to the question of religion, to the question and the world and the universe of the ritual. Because purity is first and foremost when it arrives into our consciousness, when it becomes a category in the history of our consciousness, it arrives as first and foremost as a ritual device. Purity does not obviously exist in the abstract. It is sought out, even though it is a purely abstract vision, since nothing is pure by its very definition. The pursuit of purity occurs through specific material, bodily, and ritual practices. 
we become pure by working along certain vectors that we have decided to call religious rituals. Consider, for example, fasting is a ritual that is supposed to render us pure. Consider the late capitalist variant of fasting, which is detoxification. Pay attention to the word. Detoxification is already supposed to rid the body of certain impurities. And so one of the running themes and threads that we have pursued on mutant comes to a head here, that there is absolutely nothing that is more suited to late modernity than religion. There is absolutely nothing more at home with modern technology and our technological universe than the religious one. And the parallels, the convergences, the uh, the intersections we see between these two worlds, the religious and the technological, the theological and the technological, are actually not coincidental. We have come to not only inherit, not only amplify, but actually tweak and update our classical religious vocabulary for the new technological universe. And in that sense, what has remained common at the core of this inheritance is the human search for purity. Consider the delusional search for the possibility of living on Mars. We are willing to give up on a planet because somehow some people have believed that life can be started afresh, anew, pure, like a new morning on another planet. We have started to believe that it, we return, we need to return more and more aggressively to a pure past than actually had ever existed before. And in that sense, fasting is simply an extension of some of the classical practices that have become more and more um, amenable to, but also modified according to the needs of late modernity. When we talk of purity in our own time, we must therefore not forget that we are actually in a motion of constant regress. We are repeatedly going back looking for something, whether it's a civilization, whether it's a land, whether it's a piece of territory, whether it's a species of the subhuman and the, and the humanity, uh, humanitarian fragment itself. Each of these is a search for purity that did not exist. So purity, first and foremost, is religious in that fundamental sense. It is an attempt to arrive at something, to seek something, to give a material form to something that did not exist. All politics, in the end, is a striving to come to terms with this imagined delusional purity or to circumvent our desire for it. To think of purity, in other words, is to think of the convergence that we have called before on mutant the theological, political, that our universe is somehow not otherworldly, simply because we have called it religious or divine or godly. Our universe is first and foremost political, and that the search for the divine is the most political, and to push the point that you were already making in the beginning, the most fanatical extreme of our political commitments. Ashwari, when we speak of the theological, we tend to believe that it sits outside the institutions of democracy or outside our political life. Um, in fact, democracies take great pride in, um, in distancing themselves formally from religion. And yet, there is a dimension of purity which is the legal or through which um, it enters our political life. What kind of mechanisms does purity deploy to enter politics? Well, the, the, 
The shortest way to answer that question is that politics and purity are inseparably bound at the very inception of what you call the modern pol- political world or, or democracy even, right? The idea that purity entered politics is is simply to restate in 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 other words the 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 truism that politics is founded upon a striving for purity and this is where i think we also began by trying to define what purity is and and the problem with defining purity is that it simply does not exist other than through a regressive motion of itself now we need to think this carefully it's a it's a it's a remarkably ambiguous concept purity because unlike other concepts which are pure remember all concepts in order to become concepts have a certain sort of epistemic or epistemological purity to them which is to say concepts exclude other things in order to be concepts for example the concept of power right the concept of power excludes several other concepts and words out there which seem and sound like power but could merely be manifestations of it for example coercion for example violence right all these other words and concepts are separate from power and most importantly only by separating itself from these other concepts does power become a concept the the issue with purity is that it is a concept on the one hand that must be kept pure and on the other a concept that simply does not have purely demarcated boundaries because in itself purity is more of a practice a striving uh we were saying a delusion it's almost a delirious search for something that does not exist and the claim we are making is that precisely because of this ambiguity it remains the great unsaid of our political universe today in the final instance we can disregard or we can be silent about our striving for purity we can consign it to the religious order or a ritual universe or perhaps even a theological remnant of a world that does not exist and all of these three things and arguments would be inadequate because on the one hand they're all accurate purity does belong to a religious universe purity does come to us from a ritual order and purity is above all a theological remnant and yet they are not adequate to understanding why as you are proposing purity enters politics purity enters politics not because it had ever gone away purity enters politics because the striving for purity is the fundamental death drive of modern politics in fact of modern democratic politics purity is the drive that scaffolds politics purity is the drive that annihilates modern politics and in that sense to understand purity is to extract it from its purely ritual meanings one of the practices we just spoke of and brought up was fasting but there could be others there could be wandering there could be renunciation there could be destruction there could be killing of a human being or an animal that is to say sacrificial politics all of these ritual instruments and devices are part of a striving for purity that appears for the first time in religion as durkheim would say 
and yet always serves, and I'm using Durkheim's expression here, always serves to highlight an additional torment that has no purpose to it, right? Purity might come to us from religion. Purity might enter into politics in visible ways at certain points in our history and in our future. But the fact is that purity has never, ever left politics. In fact, we could invert the formula and say that all politics is a politics of purity. This is why rituals matter to politics, including, as you were suggesting, to liberal democratic politics. Think of a simple uh, rule or law where someone indicted for a crime, someone under trial for a crime has to touch a copy of the Bhagavad Gita in front of a magistrate. Think of the ritual where someone has to, while taking an oath of office, hold a copy of the Bible in the United States. And not only are these rituals, let us remember, simply public rituals, they have religious connotations that impinge directly on the form of government we have decided to give ourselves. At every single level, of this relationship between theology and politics, what we were calling the theological political. There is therefore the question of how purely committed we are, how pure our devotion is to this political world we inherit and inhabit, right? This is why to think of politics is to think today of not simply the classical conditions and laws and rituals of purity as we have inherited them. To think of politics today is to also think of the degenerations of that purity, the delusion with which we today strive for purity. In many ways, to think of politics today is to think about the relationship, the new relationship, the neo-democratic relationship between the pure and the impure. And to rethink why this line that was always vacillating, always blurred between the pure and the impure, because there is nothing absolutely pure out here. We do not exist in a pure universe. The only thing pure about our political world is contamination. If we were, if you were to ask me, what is this one pure concept, unambiguous about ourselves that define our, our life? I would say contamination is the purest concept. And if you were to invert that question and ask, what is the most contaminated concept? I would say that of purity. Where are our uh, second concept today, which is punishment? I'm not going to it yet. And yet, one of the through lines between punishment and purity is, in fact, the figure of the woman. Purity, um, it seems to me, is is by very little is not, but purity is uh, almost overtly a gendered concept, the language of purity, the language of words often used, and you were speaking of uh, concepts that um, are often adjacent to manifestations of each other. And so I can, I can include, when, when using the word purity, I can include things like virtue or like chastity or their inverse promiscuousness and so on. And these are all words that attach to the figure of the woman. They do not attach to a male figure. In its fundamental and in, in that figure of the woman is where purity also meets a highly punitive strand, not that they're ever distinct. What is this relation between 
purity and the woman and why does it attach so closely i think purity attaches to bodies as such but why does it attach so closely to the figure of the woman to the body of the woman well partly because all forms of power uh, have at their heart a certain kind of inequality and the most fundamental inequality let's say at the level of our biological life not just our political life although all life is biopolitical in that sense it's a combination just as all law is juridico theological that is to say derived from religion but given a punitive legal form all notions concepts and drives for purity have at their heart a fundamental inequality and it is an inequality to repeat that goes to the heart of our biological life we cannot in that sense i absolutely uh, would second that assertion even though we need to move much more slowly here we cannot understand this drive or delusion for purity without understanding a common truth that is pervasively uttered and argued about and least understood which is that politics democratic politics more than it is about purity is about inequality and yet one cannot be taught without the other we cannot think of a politics of purity without thinking of inequality and we cannot think about inequality without thinking of the most biologically expressible or manifest form that that inequality is taken remember men and women are not unequal it is inequality that defines men and women as such right gender our genders are or ha- always have been biological expressions of species or 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 intraspecies difference but the fact that these uh, these two forms of the same species can be seen as being unequal comes much later and after biology and often has nothing to do with biology right on in an early episode we uh, we have often uh in fact in episode 0 i remember we talked briefly about uh about the need to uh, to carefully to carefully move when we talk in biological categories and so this is this this is that moment when we remind ourselves that that certain forms of inequality that impinge on biological differences or physiological differences are actually not inequalities but simply difference inequality is what follows from a certain kind of biologism perhaps right in that sense the figure of the woman is a figure of imp- figure of impurity because while she is while this figure is responsible for the reproduction of humanity that very work of reproduction renders her inequal unequal and therefore impure now what i'm trying to get to is a tautological relationship between inequality and impurity one is unequal because one is impure in his autobiography my experiments with truth gandhi uh, has this remarkable moment as uh, growing up as a child where he says the first time i understood about untouchability was when my, when i realized that during her menstrual periods my mother would render herself untouchable right and this ritual is widely known across religious traditions menstruating women prohibited from entering sacred spaces now we can say as many things as we want to about this particular law or particular injunction but what is universal about this injunction is that at certain moments in the wake of gandhi let's simply are uh, let's simply posit at certain moments the woman 
who gives you birth is herself too impure to touch you and therefore also too impure to enter a sacred space right therein lies the tautology that which is impure is unequal even though she is responsible for the very production and reproduction of the species and that which is impure is now unequal and therefore untouchable and for for us thinking through what i often call the caste contract this is that moment where it becomes stark when the idea that all untouchability in the end has something to do not only with purity in a biological sense or sense of birth and territory or blood all inequality has something to do with a will to punish someone because you can't punish them comes into play right women are subjects of punishment or our punitive will because it has always been considered a man's right to punish them even for their own mistakes there's a there's a reason why women are often abducted and raped during genocidal mayhems across traditions across spaces and and nationalities right our question is not to judge whether this is barbaric or human whether this is legal or illegal our task perhaps is to ask a more fundamental question about the kind of social relations and the kind of moral principles that underpin this inequality of which the woman is the exemplary or perhaps even a paradigmatic figure this fundamental moral inequality of which or the burden of which must be borne first and foremost by women you can take actually historical and actually existing contemporary examples one could choose for example the uh, the life of a slave woman in a plantation in the american south men were flogged so were women but only were women made responsible for giving birth to more slave children right and therein lies the great depravity at the heart of our drive to 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 purity that it is always accompanied by a will to punish that this will to punish is always unequally executed and that this inequality of execution of punishment often has sound economic and morally reprehensible reasons because all will to punish is driven by a desire to hand out additional torment for no particular reason of that the woman is a remarkably an endlessly punished figure because on her and 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 paradoxical too because on her rests not just the burden of being punished for an entire community on her rests the burden of also carrying the honor of that community right think of the ramayan in which after uh, the people of ayodhya start to talk about cheat uh, about uh, sita's chastity ram has no moral compunction in forcing her to walk the fire quite literally haul her over the coals so that she could prove her purity this is epic and this goes this sort of misogyny goes to the heart of art 
religious tradition and our political tradition and therefore needs to be called out immediately all delusions of purity have at their heart a fundamental inextricable misogyny if i take that formulation um, that you say that we have a will to punish right as being then the source in a sense or the origin in a sense of the clamor for purity because um it is is it is it is it a sort of you have you you began by saying purity does not exist cannot exist right and is in itself a mythic creation mm-hmm. right and so what is this will to punish which in a sense gives rise to the idea of purity uh, on the back of which punishment rests what is our will to punish where does it come from it comes exactly from where we have been suggesting all punishment is in the end driven by this delusion this fantasy that we were at some point pure that we can regain and recover our purity and this could this could mean many things most uh, politically salient would be a sort of civilizational purity a kind of religious purity and in that sense the parallels between uh extreme nationalisms of various kind let's say um let's say white nationalism or christian nationalism and hindu nationalism and and so on or what used to be called or what is still called islamic fundamentalism all these fundamentalisms by their very nature are driven by a certain drive to purify the community right and because no such purification can occur without exclusion without shaming without ejection without disposal without above all think of germany extermination punishment becomes almost the juridical counterpart of our theological fantasies if you were to simply ask or posit the question what is punishment we could describe punishment as the juridical counterpart of our theological fantasies of purity there is absolutely nothing more irreducible about punishment its laws its statutes its functions its symptoms its mechanisms its forms its expressions its manifestations think for example we were talking of sita the real punishment is not that sita will have to walk over fire the real punishment is the shaming that precedes it that shames even and the name is used only the description is named only for ram in the indian epic tradition that shames even a maryada purushottam ram to haul his wife over coals the real punishment or uh, to return to durkheim the torment precedes the manifestation of this punitive will and therein lies an entire history of our moral confusions we are so concerned and obsessed with the modes and modalities of how we punish that we simply forget to ask what is this fundamental death drive that spirals us towards this punitive disaster now we have talked about it earlier we will talk about it again but this is where liberal outrage comes into our frame of reference liberal outrage is so easy liberal outrage is so pervasive not because it's ingenuine much of this outrage is very genuinely felt but that is what it turns out to be a mere outrage that seeks to transform the punitive universe around us by offering solace but punishment in its most fundamental distilled form does not respond to solace it has no time for consolation 
the will to punish is a hard science that marries our faith to our bigotries. The will to punish is driven in the name of belief, but carried forth by a cold, irrational, catastrophic drive that has nothing but distrust in it. So when we want to understand the relationship between purity and punishment, and this is where I think we need to return to your earlier formula about throwaway line, the relationship between purity and punishment is often looked at as a throwaway relationship, as something that we simply put out there because neither concept is stable, as we were saying. Neither of those two are actually based upon exclusions of other concepts. In fact, they are voracious and they consume other concepts. Punishment is unthinkable without a certain kind of excess. There is excess at the heart of punishment. If there was no excess at the heart of punishment, there is absolutely no reason, as Ambedkar reminds us, among all thinkers, before all thinkers. There would be no death penalty. And like, uh, you know, like he does earlier in his life when he's still a graduate student in New York, he returns to the episode in the Ramayana to talk about the death penalty. There is excess at the heart of punishment. And this sort of excess, the modality of this excess mirrors in fact, we were saying it's simply the counterpart of the excess that is purity. They share not simply a logic, they are logically one. We cannot deconstruct the concept if there is one, if there is one concept of purity. We cannot deconstruct the concept of purity without examining closely our will to punish. And this is one of the great insights, I think, that Didier Fassin, the anthropologist, uh, has in his remarkable set of reflections on punishment, that the will to punish is in the end also a reflection of our drive for pleasure. We take pleasure in it. And, and obviously, this is fascinating taking from Nietzsche's idea of, of pain and pleasure, which finds also its early 20th century uh, articulation in Freud. But for our purposes, this relationship between giving pain and deriving pleasure has for too long been taken to be a settled relation. And what we have been calling the neo-democratic condition is the destabilization of the seemingly settled relation between pain and pleasure, between torment and tyranny, between sacrifice and community. When, when we ask, as you were saying uh, a few minutes ago, what is it in purity that drives it to, the, to this will to punish? I hear us asking, why was this relationship not visible to us before? What I'm asking when we talk about the neo-democratic condition is whether the condition that we are calling neo-democratic is precisely bringing to light this seemingly settled but highly unstable, combustible, catastrophic relation between purity, which reeks of a desire to control, and punishment, which is fueled by a desire to shame, not one and the same. We can take any number of examples of the will to punish. Young Muslim boys hung on trees. Young black men shot dead by the police. 
women brutalized and executed because they do not want to abide by archaic or anachronistic laws of dressing imposed by Muslim fundamentalists. Young, school-going, college-going Muslim women refusing to abide by laws that either reject their right, rise, right to drive a car or their right to reproductive care. And these societies are on the surface as far apart, apparently, in their political commitments as you can imagine. A white nationalist in the United States would rile and rail at the prospect of simply being told that his politics is no different from a Hindu nationalist. Right. And yet, it seems like fanaticisms of the world, fanaticisms of the world have united. Whether or not the working classes of the world have united is an open question. But there is no doubt that in our fanaticism to which fuels our drive to punish, we have somewhere come together. And we have come together because each of these fanaticisms speaks in the language of its own internal purity. There is a border running through and cleaving through liberal democracies today. And those borders are now internal to us. It used to be that the enemy of democracies always used to reside overseas, abroad. Think of the Cold War, for example. Now, the enemies of democracy, it has been so identified, reside among ourselves. And this is why to understand purity is to understand also a suicidal drive. We have turned it against ourselves, against our closest, most, most intimate neighbors. Right? So to your question, what brings these two concepts together? There could be two reasons. One, that they are one concept, or rather that in their very powerful ambiguities, they cannot be understood in separation or separately from one another. That purity and punishment need to be understood together. In fact, the antithesis of purity is not pollution, as functionalist anthropologists used to say. Purity has no antithesis. It's voracious. It consumes everything. That's why we have been calling it fantasy. Purity has no antithesis, only a counterpart, and its counterpart is punishment. That's one reason. And the second reason why this relationship is not a throwaway is because both manufacture, re-entrench, and consolidate the regime of barbaric inequality with which we have made peace. And I say that again, not casually. We have made peace, by which I don't mean it does not bother us. By making peace, I simply mean we have nothing other than solace to offer, nothing other than outrage to vent when we see our politics and drive to purity unleash our will to punish. And inequality, as we often say, shall not go away in even a tidal wave of our consolation. It will require a systematic deconstruction of why we fail again and again to leave the violence around us. Why we have never refused the temptation to violate and to even lynch those who are most vulnerable around us. That is the question 
of politics. That is why purity is both a juridical political and a juridical theological concept, if there is one. I think we've circled and will continue to circle, but not necessarily yet come to uh, one of the foundational concepts that I think um, that that as you as you alluded to earlier in this episode, that some things take time and need to be given time, and equality is one of those. Mm. So I'm going to commit it a bit obliquely. Uh, not frontally at the moment, but but when we say, when we think of punishment, societies around the world, uh, and whether they're democratic or not, uh, whether they think themselves humane or not, have sort of agreed on a collective lie, a collective perjury, if you will, that suggests that there are certain things that simply must be punished, right? That, that, at the very least, fairness or reformation, if not justice, requires punishment, right? Um, and yet, there is an entire, not just tradition, I would think a revolutionary tradition that, that locates in um, forgiveness, right? An exit from, from that kind of economy of punishment. Hmm. Um, Hannah Arendt's uh, formulation, which says we punish only those we can forgive. Hmm. So the question I'm really coming to here is, is punishment therefore simply a ruse for power? Yeah, I would begin, begin by saying two things there. One, that we need to understand power not in its in its simply in its conventional sense which is power as command power as control power sometimes as a function of sovereignty we need to understand power also as that which that can that which can be expressed as a kind of passivity or something that expresses itself as passivity right um for example you could be moved to tears by the fact that someone has been lynched based on a false rumor. You could be distraught and left completely um, saddened by an act of communal killing, which is also all acts of communal killing are also sacrificial killings. And yet, both physically and cognitively, let alone morally and or politically, you respond with nothing other than that, that outrage or, that, or those tears, right? Why? Where is that passivity coming from? Where is the luxury of not doing anything coming from? Where is this immense privilege? of being at one and the same time absolutely human and absolutely monstrous. James Baldwin says, this is a terrible indictment, but I think white Americans have become and turned themselves into moral monsters. <laughs> and he follows it by saying, I know it is a terrible indictment. But that's what my countrymen have become, moral monsters, right? So completely and identifiably human in a physical, biological sense, as we were saying, but monstrous in a moral sense. To be these two things at one at the same time requires a hidden privilege. It requires, that is to say, Passivity is also a form of an aristocratic power, by which we don't mean a kind of feudal medieval power, that too, but a sort of classic late modern urbane power, 
that expresses itself in outrage and refuses to move a finger against oppression and inequality. Right? This is the reason why power needs to be understood in the language and through the crystal, through the prism of passivity. And this is where I want us to go next when you ask me this question about power and equality. I want to go next to that place to, to, to somehow coax ourselves to that place where we start to see punishment not simply as an indicator of our power over others, not to simply see a majoritarian fantasy of extreme violence, but also a majoritarian commitment to immovable passivity. And these two things are not different. This is why Derrida can say there are times when it is in nonviolence that the greatest violence can reside. Right? Because we believe that our will to punish must always have a physical manifestation or expression. Of course there are. Of course there is fl flogging and shaming and humiliation and lynching. From Singapore to San Francisco, every society has a way to shame and punish. Has a, has a mechanism of active brutalization which is folded into legal and illegal means of hurting people for their inequality. But what punishment also is, and what I'm inviting us to reconsider, is, the, is not simply the expression and the devices that carry forward and express our will to punish. I'm coaxing us to examine and deconstruct the logic of this will to punish. And the logic of this will to punish remains lodged, as it were, not simply in overt power, not simply in rituals of sovereignty, not simply in juridico-theological modalities of inflicting pain and torment, the logic of our will to punish resides sometimes also in absolutely curated passivity. Right? And this passivity can sometimes take the name of civility. This passivity can sometimes take the name of solace. This passivity can sometimes take the name of normativity. But in the end, what this all is, is a certain refusal to leave our temptation of vengeance. This is where Hannah Arendt writes uh, the, the, the uh, formula you brought up briefly in, in her essay on que some questions of moral philosophy. This is the logic of vengeance we need to understand more closely. How is it that that which becomes unpunishable, how have we reached this point that crimes that find no example or precedent in law have simply become permissible, right? In fact, her formula is that which is unpunishable soon becomes permissible, which is an inversion of what you were saying as well, right? That when we do not know how to punish something, we take the easy way out by simply permitting it to occur, to come to pass. And the name for that, I believe, is passivity. Now, what I want us to think in these closing moments of the episode is 
if we think closely, look back into our own inner, private, religious, ritual life, the many lives, among the many lives we lead, among the many kinds and dimensions that we inhabit, living our life routinely, the moral dimension, the political dimension, the social dimension, the ritual dimension, all among all these dimensions, let us pause and think, in which dimension is passivity seen as a virtue? Which dimension of our private inner life or since we were thinking of Gandhi and he was very, very fond of using this word, in which dimension of our spiritual life is passivity the greatest virtue? I'm not asking us to think whether it's right or wrong. I'm simply asking us of that dimension to, 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 to pinpoint or name that dimension of our spiritual life in which passivity is almost seen as a testament to our inner strength, in which sacrifice is seen to be a witness to our masculinity, in which not doing anything is seen to be a stoic reminder of our heroism, in which moving... Um, or being moved to nothing, moved by nothing, touched by nothing, is seen as a monastic triumph of our inner control. In what dimension are these true of passivity, of our passivity, of our refusal to do anything other than the ritual dimension of our lives? Women fasting, uh, for an entire day waiting for the moon to come out in North India for uh, a longer, not necessarily happier, but longer life of their spouses. <laughs> in what dimension are women left to fast while their capacity to go hungry is seen as a testament to their strength possible. Passivity belongs to that dimension. When we say religion has become a part of our political life, we need to examine how and in what forms has it taken such toxic forms. And in a sense, uh, it reminds me of when we alluded in an earlier episode to the pandemic and to the laborers or the migrant labor, again, walking back hundreds of miles to their homes and being lauded for their asceticism, right? For, for the grace and the dignity or the resilience with which um, that sacrifice of them was made. So if I, um, we will, we will close now, but um, that, that inversion, that's that almost uh, counterintuitive turn you make with power, effectively not the power to intervene, but the power to do nothing, right? Which is in a sense, as you posit, passivity. And I wonder if, that illuminates something else, a concept or a word that we aren't directly touching, but that attaches itself to the same, same class. And I use the word class advisedly here, which is the idea of peace, right? Uh, and I wonder if the idea of peace is one that is wholly propagated by and, and uh, reinforced by those with the power to do nothing and who, who, who invoke through peace that power to do nothing. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, I, I think you, um, you thread this very, very um, 
precisely um, because there is a name. What, uh, there is a there is a category we have often talked about, and and we will keep talking about that that is held together by this enigmatic form of power to do nothing. And I wouldn't call it um, just a class. I would call it a majoritarian coalition. It's a coalition of self-interest, right? When we uh, talk of, uh, about the new democratic condition, we often define it in, in, in different moral terms and political terms. But one way in which this condition comes together and is held together is by the social ritual form that can be understood not anymore through a social contract theory, but must be understood through a coalitional theory of politics. It's a coalition of self-interest that is held together by a privilege, an unexamined and obdurate privilege to do nothing. And in that sense, power today must be understood also in terms of a, a barbaric passivity. As we go further uh, into mutant, we will uh, separate passivity from another concept that we have already spoken of, which is neglect. And we're talking of neglect as active. We will return to, and we will have to return to passivity, qua passivity that which is not active, that which is purely passive, that passivity which is rooted only and can be only legitimated by a certain politics of purity. To think of purity today is to think of not just this ritualized search, for purity, whose burden falls unequally on us. In that sense, as we were saying, purity is already a reminder of and a concealment of our seemingly ineradicable inequalities. But to think of purity is to also bring politics back to its most primal roots where politics was always and never too far away from the will to punish. And by the will to punish, we don't simply mean the commensurate infliction of pain. We do not simply mean an infliction of pain commensurate to the offense. In that sense, the test of chastity that Sita had to take had no commensurate transgression. And that is why we began by saying, and that is where we must end, I believe, that punishment is always already an excess. And like all excesses, its burden falls unequally on us, which is to simply say that inequality is the hidden bond of our relentless pursuit of purity on the one hand and our tireless fantasies of exterminating the other on the other. We're, we're going to close this episode now and I think we're beginning, um, for those who have only recently started listening, I would urge you to go back to uh, our earlier episodes because we're beginning to build threads through these concepts that illuminate something very, very acute about our democratic condition. There is also, when you referred, hmm. uh, Ashwari, to the majoritarian coalition, hmm. I wonder if we will return to this um, in a subsequent episode. I wonder if, again, a modern democratic face of that is the idea of bipartisanship that you have also been developing. So there's a lot to pick up and, and uh, take forward as we continue this. In the meanwhile, there's 
a whole host of episodes to hear that you haven't already if you haven't already and join us back here very soon for another episode of mutant thanks for listening